Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon, they'll bend your ears with reckless self abandon. The amazing spider talk. The amazing spider talk. Come swing through the air, sit back and prepare for the amazing. Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Gavostin, and I'm the founder and editor of SuperiorSpiderTalk.com. And I'm Mischievous Mark Giannacchio, founder of the Chasing Amazing blog and author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us for a special episode of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Yes, today we're going to be discussing our thoughts on Amazing Spider-Man number 794 to 796, also known as the Threat Level Red Arc. Uh, all of the discussions you're about to hear were recorded as part of our Patreon club the week that these comics were released. If you would like to join us for these episodes as we release them in real time, uh, especially now as we're entering the Go Down Swinging arc, uh, which is Dan Slott's last arc on Amazing Spider-Man, uh, why not uh, head over to our Patreon page and join us for just $3.99 a month? You know, cost of a comic. What's wrong with you? Just do it, right, Dan? Yeah, we do a lot of awesome stuff over there. In fact, we just recorded an episode all about the new creative team of Nick Spencer, Ryan Otley, and Laura Martin that's going to be taking over Amazing Spider-Man this summer. So if you want to join us for that conversation, hop on over to our Patreon, get that, all the different reviews, and so much stuff. So uh, yeah, join us. Tell us what you think. We want to know about it, but we got a lot to cover today. We're going to try to not make this a two-and-a-half-hour-long show like the Venom episode was. So, Mark, why don't you kick us off here? Yeah, let's let's get right to it. We're going to go to our first chapter of Threat Level Red, which was found in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man number 794. Dan, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Now let's, let's, let's talk about it again. What's new? Dan and I are here today uh, to give you, of course, a little review of Amazing Spider-Man number 794. That's 9-4, Dan, not 9-3, as you had on Twitter uh, a couple of times last week. Oh, wow. Well, okay. My mistake. <laughs> I, didn't I, even, like, I didn't even notice that. I was like, should I retweet this one or should I just let it be? And uh, I retweeted it because I'm, I'm all about quality control. You know, you could have reached out to me and said, hey, Dan. It's but not- the tweet was up. People were liking it. I'm like, I don't you know. All right. <laughs> Let's get into our review of Amazing Spider-Man number 794. Mark, before we even get into this review, I think it's kind of important that we address the elephant in the room that's probably going to affect how we talk about this review 
And it's that we finally got confirmation that Dan Slott is leaving the book with issue 801. So we've got less than 10 issues of his run on this book to go until it ends. Yeah, and, you know, it was uh, in a big interview that that Dan Slott did with uh, Vulture. Uh, It's actually a really good interview. I recommend everyone seek it out and and check it out, where, you know, he more or less says that this is something that has – been on his calendar, so to speak, for, for since, what, 2014, he, he identified it as, which kind of surprised me. Did it surprise you? Yeah, that seems like a long way away for him to kind of prognosticate this end and also to have the confidence that he would be allowed to stay on the book. But I guess, you know, even then the cards must have been really clear that he wanted the book really bad. They wanted him to stay on it. And they would work together to make that happen. Pretty amazing, considering the turnaround on all the other Marvel books that are that are going on right now. Yeah, definitely. And and I mean, it, Dan Slott is not he's not like Bendis. He's not leaving to go to the Distinguished Competition or to do an Image book. He's going to start. He's actually going to take over for Bendis on Iron Man uh, upon completing Spider Man, which is kind of funny since a lot of people were joking that Volume Four of Spider Man was you know Tony Stark as Peter Parker. But now he'll just get to write Tony Stark as Tony Stark. So I, I was really hoping for the Fantastic Four, but Iron Man will do too. Yeah, I think Fantastic Four and Slot would have been a better match, especially after seeing what he did with Silver Surfer. But at the same token, I have been enjoying – it's only two issues in, but I have enjoyed what Chip Zdarsky's doing on Marvel 2-in-1. And I'm wondering if they're just setting it up for him to take over the uh, F4 when that book relaunches inevitably. Well, we hope, inevitably. Yeah, you would think. But beyond that, yeah, so, so Dan Slott is leaving. And, and you know, I, I got to admit, I, I was I used some of that information from that interview and it kind of colored my review of Amazing Spider-Man number 794, Dan, because it's like, yeah, I mean, we're 10 issues – we're less than 10 issues away from the end of this run that has been going on for 10 years. So, you know, for me – it's like, all right, we're, I, not that I want to see big stuff happen every issue, but, you know, normally when a longtime creator knows he's exiting stage left, there, there's a sense of like, well, you're either putting the toys back in the box or you're just kind of tying up, you know, Slot always talks about his long game. So it's like, let's let's tie up some loose ends. And I guess that's what we saw in this issue, but I, I, I'm, I'm kind of viewing this a little more cynically than you are, Dan, and, and maybe we can kind of get into this as we break down what happens in this issue. Yeah, that sounds about right, uh, You know, at least based on what I read in your review. We haven't really talked about this yet. I think I'm a little more positive than you, um, but I, I, I can't help but, yes, also have my thoughts colored by this huge announcement that we just got in the book, which I'm sure we'll talk about as the Slot's run comes to an end, more details about Slot's run in general. Um, as if you haven't gotten enough details from us on Slot's run in this podcast. So, you know, Dan, at least, you know, by having this news out there, we can finally stop getting the question to the podcast. So when do you think Don Dan Slot's going to leave the book and who's going to take over? Now it'll just be who's going to take over. So... Uh, I, I am thankful for that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm kind of, anyway. kind of, I've got kind of done ignoring that question. <laughs> Threat level red, Dan. Threat level red. So uh, we, we, of course, kind of 
learn who the who the threat level red is in the end of this issue and um also kind of relates to what happens at the beginning here uh we got Stuart Eminen back on art here and i mean you know the guy the guy just knows how to draw comics dan <laughs> like, <laughs> like this opening sequence right yeah, I thought it was a thrilling way to start the story, and you know, by the end, you realize that it's kind of elegantly setting up two different stories, uh, and I, and I kind of like that. I mean, I there's times where you know writers would probably have spent six pages on the Goblin story and six pages on the Zodiac story, and I thought this was a clever way of combining the two and kind of just getting it over with. I guess so. I mean, but like this, this, this kind of launches into my initial problem with this question. So, you know, the, the, the main, the main narrative, you know, putting aside the, uh, you know, the Osborne bookend of this comic, the main story is, you know, we're, we're, we're now a year after, um, Spider-Man in, you know, trapped, Zodiac in back in during volume four was that like issue 13 I think is when that story arc officially ended I mean it was the first really main long-term arc on volume four for Parker Industries and you know first of all I mean yes with the power of editorial boxes I I was reminded of when that story was but like I haven't really thought about Zodiac since that comic and I don't feel like this comic has even addressed why this matter matters i guess what i'm trying to say is is this a story that needed further resolution i thought so i was looking forward to this even though i even if i feel like there's no way a year has passed in the comic since then and i kind of am wishy-washy about how i feel about specific time happening in the pages of a comic it's kind of a weird thing to address um but I was kind of hoping that another writer would pick up this story as kind of an exciting way to merge, you know, two different writers' works into one ongoing story. I didn't feel like Dan Slott needed to be the one to finish this, especially in the way that it played out. It didn't, it didn't seem like he had a really strong idea of what to do with this, so why not let someone else come in and riff like a good improv partner? I, I guess, Dan. I mean, but here's the thing. I mean, like, I, I felt that Zodiac as a Spider-Man villain was kind of problematic from the get-go because, you know, he's not someone that I associate with Spider-Man. And yes, I know we got to we got to build up and and have that. But he, the way he was originally built in Volume Four was specifically not only just a, a Spider-Man adversary, but like a, a Parker Industry adversary. And now Parker Industry has been rendered moot in this status quo. I mean, he's Peter is no longer in charge of his own company. So kind of like having this prognosticating supervillain that could, you know, wreak havoc on Peter and Spider-Man in multiple levels kind of felt, you know, like I was like, it it wasn't something I I felt the need to go back to. I mean, you know, like I'd be not that I want another Otto story, but at least like there's something more to it there because Otto could come forward and be like, you screwed up. (laughs) <laughs> like I said, you would, you know, like I, 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 I just don't quite understand why we needed to come back to this story and do it now. Like it, it's, it, it, it felt completely out of nowhere to me. Like, like, why does this matter? Why are we, why, like, we, like there was no build to this in the comics prior, was there? 
No, and I, I have a problem with that. But to your point, I thought this was worth uh, reinvesting in. And the comic kind of pointed out that you know before Peter could fight him on the worldwide scale because he had all these resources, and now he's you know just Peter working at the Daily Bugle again. If he really felt the responsibility about Zodiac and felt that like the threat was personal, you know he would not be able to stand up to him like he did before with all of his vehicles and all of these things. I thought it would be a cool way to kind of you know, show the contrast between where he was before and where he is now. Um, you know, but I can say that, do I think this story really accomplishes that, even though it points it out? Not really. Uh, this doesn't seem like, the threat here doesn't seem like a threat that um, is something that Peter can't solve without having a more worldwide reach. I mean, he does defeat him here, so... In essence, he can beat him. I don't know. It just it just seemed like cool idea, but with no real meat or th- thought process to how do I make that theme or idea more prevalent in the actual story. Yeah, I, I get you. I mean, I, I, I guess for me, and this is where I'm where I I feel like I'm being a little more cynical. And when I say cynical, I don't mean negative, like lower score. Cynical, as in like I feel that there are other motives at play here behind the thrust of this issue and you know i'm not i guess i shouldn't be judging for that but um in concert with this review that at uh, this review this interview that dan slot recently gave about kind of his his going out on spider-man and how he's kind of eyed this i i the number 801 for for a while like he he this is this is a number on a calendar you know circling the date so to speak that he has had for a while and just like you said like every everything about this issue it's like okay maybe it could have been a good concept but we didn't really address that it like 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 you said what what what's the challenge here like we don't see peter a, a, a depleted peter having to really challenge himself to take on Zodiac and, 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 you know, also it's like he's, he's paired off with Mockingbird again and we're in, we're in a world without shield, which by the way, when did that happen? Uh, that happens in like the Captain America stories and a bunch of other oh. places. It's in that whole realm of the Marvel universe shield. It's kind of disappeared after the whole, um, pleasant, Secret. uh, what's that pleasant town incident? I forget the name of that town. Okay, so it's a it's a it's a not Nazi uh, Nazi cap uh, fallout thing, right? Kind of. I think it happens. Yeah, it happens around then because Cap because puts gets put in the head of Shield and then kind of gets brought down. Okay. Point being, so that's that's part of the status quo too. Yet, like, I don't get the sense that. Mockingbird is really challenged by that status quo. I mean, she's just kind of doing her thing in this book. Well, to be um, technical, she did leave Shield in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man. That's true, but I don't know. Like, this is a lot going on here where it's like we're not actually taking advantage of what the status quo is or should be, and it makes me wonder: is this just like an issue? Like, well, I have to get. X more issues. This is Dan Slot talking. I have to get X more issues done 
to get to 801. So we'll just throw a Zodiac story in there. That's kind of how this whole comic feels to me. And by the way, I can start building to my Red Goblin story with some stuff in the in the beginning and the end, which, by the way, I felt was the best part of the comic, the Red I, Goblin stuff. Yeah, I kind of agree. Um, but my take on it is a little bit different than yours. Like for me, I read this comic as I really would like to finish up the Zodiac story that I set up, but I was asked to fit in this Venom Inc. story that I wasn't necessarily planning on. And so I'd rather spend more time on Red Goblin because I'm more interested in that. So I'll wrap up the Zodiac thing and use it as a launching board for the Red Goblin. I just see a guy who is under a specific editorial constraints and <laughs> is trying to make it all work. And that's kind of a silly thing in comics because like, he's being constrained by the very fact that he has to end by an arbitrary deadline of 800 or 801. Right. And so in a, re in a real good storytelling world, both of these stories would be given equal weight and allow them both to play out. But now we're locked into this deadline of fit both these ideas in here. So you're probably right. There's definitely a way that these both these stories could be given – equal heft and play out the way they probably should. Um, but I, I, yeah, I don't know. In my it mind, I see an editorial that is pushing this guy to do all these things and he's trying to do his best. It could be your interpretation, but I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. I, I don't know why, but I, <laughs> but I am. That's uh, fair. Cause I still no. kind of enjoy, like enjoyed this issue and see a writer who puts those ideas in there, even if he can't allow them to play out fully, I have to imagine that somewhere he wants to and is aware of that. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, it's it's interesting that you kind of bring up the 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 ham-handedness of, of Venom Inc. and all this, because, you know, it does make you think, you know, was this story supposed to be the immediate follow-up to Fall of Parker? Because it would have made sequential sense. And, and maybe if he had multiple issues to do it, this would have been built considerably better and we would have dealt with some of the issues that we've been talking about that are missing from this comic like you said we don't i mean not only do, do we not get a real struggle of how the new status quo of pete being a nobody affects him in the battle against zodiac but like you know we, we we're now four issues removed from like oh he's back at the bugle and he's got to prove himself again and it's like that 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 whole thing just kind of gets lip service like like oh yeah you know me I, i'm 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 off from the bugle again i mean like you know robbie must really be a hell of a boss to just be like oh well you know this new guy i gave this new job to is just you know out in the middle of nowhere again yeah i mean even more than that he makes a mention that it costs him a lot of money to get the plane tickets to come to greenwich to you know, witness the door opening of the return of Scorpio. And I would have loved to have seen Peter go, there's something happening that I'm responsible for on the other side of the planet. And I can't afford to go there now. How do I scrape this together or strap myself to the plane or whatever it is I have to do to make that happen? Um, I'm not saying I want, three issues of the Scorpio story, maybe one or two. Um, and there's definitely something to a one and done. There's a certain joy to that. 
especially since we already spent so much time on Scorpio. I don't think we would have loved to read that much more. But if you're going to, you know, set him up this way and go into these ideas, I would have loved to see them fleshed out a little bit more. Um, And then there's the whole thing with the clock tower and Big Ben that just is so uninteresting, even if it's drawn beautifully. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, and I think that's just it. I mean, there is, there is an inherent beauty to a well done one and done, but there's this, I think this comic is trying to have it too many ways. I mean, it's, it's by definition a one and done. Like, like, I don't want to like say that it's not, but like, I feel like the way the story is kind of framed here, it feels like there's something missing from it. It's incomplete. And maybe it would have been completed with a second issue or, you know, that, you know, that either precedes or follows it, whatever, however you need to do it. But it's not, it's, it's one issue, but it doesn't read like a true one and done. Does that make sense? Am I being overly weird about this? (laughs) No, no. For me, I can, I can list it. The things that I think are missing from this issue. Like I think it's missing, you know, a look into what makes Peter's status quo through the lens of Scorpio different this time. It's missing a real threat from Scorpio because this whole transmuter thing inside the tower is really half-baked and kind of dumb. And it's missing the gravity of Scorpio because we spent, whatever, nine issues setting this guy up and all of his powers and this big chase through the channel and all this stuff. And then he just gets dispatched with a punch here. So it's like all three of those things, the thematics for Peter, the the idea behind the threat of Scorpio, and the weight of all the time we've spent on Scorpio are all undercut in this issue. You know, P.S., you mentioned getting dispatched with a punch, which was disappointing. But, like, you know, that punch was also preceded by by Spider-Man taking a very odd calculated risk that him knocking him out of the clock tower uh, would not result in his death. Yeah, I mean, the clock tower visual is incredible, right? Him just socking him through the clock is awesome. Have we seen... I, I feel like we've seen this kind of a calculation from Spider-Man before. The, I don't think this is going to kill you but I'm not entirely sure of it thing. Yeah, I feel it's a newer kind of wrinkle and I don't love it. I got to be honest with you. (laughs) Um, But I'm not going to sit here and be like, you can't write Peter this way. Um, But it's, it's, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know if that's uh, an old school attribute that, is being mined here. I think this is something, a a decision that this creator has kind of decided is within bounds. Yeah. I mean, at least he acknowledges it to a certain point. Like he says, you know, Mockingbird's like, Oh, were you going to let him hit the ground? And he says, well, I would have done something with my webs. If it really came down to it, it's not, I don't totally buy it, but yeah. um, Yeah. It's for me, this was not the most, troublesome thing in this comic i'm sure other people will find trouble with it and i get it but 
I don't I guess I just don't care that much, but it is worth noting. I just also as a nitpicky note, I, I want to point out that Big Ben isn't the clock. It's yes. just the bell, and that's a lesson for everyone. Yes. I was uh recently uh schooled on that on Pod Save America. Oh, you're you right. To- it did come up there, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> See, look at us promoting other podcasts. Um, like they need but, our help. Yes. Yeah, right. Um, we kind of dump Anna Maria in this issue. I haven't seen her in a while. She's just off the horizon. Do like we think do. that this is her heading towards the proverbial horizon, the the end of her character and Max Modell in this run of Dan Slots. I mean, she's a very dis- definitively Dan Slot creation. And I'm not saying that as a bad thing, but like I I would be curious to see if other another creator would even do much with her. I mean, not only is she a definitive Dan Slot creation, but the fact of the matter was her 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 reason for being was superior, you know, in terms of how she came to be and the the uniqueness of the character I felt was best dealt with during Superior. And she's kind of languished ever since because, you know, we didn't want to have her be a love interest for Peter, but we also didn't want to just completely, like, push her to the side because she was an interesting character, but we never gave her anything interesting to do. So what's going to (laughs) happen? It's also kind of a pattern on these books that when creators or like leave or define an era, they introduce all these supporting cast characters. And then the next person who comes on kind of might mention them here and there, but doesn't prominently feature them. They come up with their own new supporting cast. And to me, I don't think this was like a fitting end for Anna Maria or Max Modell, but they've kind of been non-presences in the book and that they came up here and Dan Slott saw a reason to mention and give them somewhere to go seemed to me like, okay, this is the end of that character and we'll see whether or not anybody uses them in the future. But I wouldn't be surprised if they just kind of sailed off towards Horizon University. Kind of like all those creators using Ezekiel again after JMS left the book. (laughs) Well, I guess Dan Slott did to a certain extent considering Ezekiel's dead. Yeah, but, you know, that was years later. I'm saying like in the immediate aftermath, that that character was kind of put on ice for a while. Oh, for sure, for sure. They have to build a significant amount of nostalgia before you bring him back. Exactly. So... Yeah, so th- th- now do you want you want to start talking about Red Goblin here? Yeah, let's let's talk about the big reveal in this issue that was kind spoiled. of spoiled. Yeah, it was spoiled like days before its release, which is I found really frustrating because Marvel had me convinced it wasn't Carnage. They had me convinced it was Mephisto, which I thought was a smart, you know, distraction from them. I mean, it was definitely intentional. That they drew the character in the uh, you know cover that they introduced him in to in look like Mephisto, right? I mean, it was to get us all riled up for the yeah. swerve. And then even like that artwork that was leaked from what was that supposed to be seven ninety seven that showed Peter and MJ kissing again, right? Was yeah, that- yeah. And I sent it to you, and you gave me an eye roll, and you were right. Uh, it was a total eye roll. It wasn't. 
it's not Mephisto, at least as far as we know right now. Yeah, I, 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 I think that I kind of, tr- I mean, yeah, Dan Slott's the one who said Peter's dead forever and that he was never leaving Spider-Man. So how much can you really trust uh, a, a carnival barker like that? But at the same token, like, I really do kind of trust the fact that he's just not touching that rail, you know, <laughs> like, and, and that rail being... MJ, the marriage, and, and one more day, not in a meaning, not in a truly meaningful way, but who knows? Maybe, maybe we're wrong. Um, but yeah, so it's clear that the that Norman Osborn's going to get his powers back, or, or get his insanity as the Goblin back via the Carnage symbiote. So this is all leading towards Green Goblin meets Carnage, which I'm sure. A certain contingent of the fan base of Spider-Man is going to think that's an awesome idea. And that's great. Um, what do you think of that, Dan? I'm not as convinced. Uh, although there have been great Carnage stories as of recently. Um, I mean, Carnage even showed up in Nova shortly ago, which is how he finds himself locked away in this vault. Uh, he was beaten up by Nova, or at least Sam Alexander, if you will. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, we just got done with a symbiote story, which I found really annoying. And now we're going to complicate the goblin by making him a symbiote and not one of our favorite symbiotes. Well, I guess, I guess really he's, like, number two to Venom. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not about to start ranking, like, toxic or toxin or whatever or uh <laughs> the others over him but i mean here's the thing yeah we've been we, I, we've been getting better carnage stories of late um in other like in minis and then of course the the, the jerry conway ongoing although even that one i feel like kind of lost its steam after an arc or two i mean you know kind of demonstrated yet again that Carnage is at his best in small doses, but I mean, putting all that aside, I mean, like what we're essentially getting here is where it's, it's, you know, like let's take Green Goblin, let's take Norman Osborn, who, you know, is one of Marvel's flagship villains and let's, let's, let's make him supercharged. And I, I, I don't know what's interesting about that because like Osborne, Osborne is like, one of those characters that doesn't need to be supercharged, you know, like it's like, let's, we're not going to like, and DC's not giving, and if I'm wrong on this, please correct me. DC's not like taking Lex Luthor and making him dark side. You know what I mean? Like, well, no, but they made him Superman, I guess, but that's, that's different. <laughs> or, or they're not like, I don't know. Like I, I, like I said, it's, 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 it's taking, this is a character that's already it's not it's not just giving him more power but it's like it's it's taking two distinctively different like elite powered villains who i mean say what you will about carnage but he is considered an a-lister whether you want him to be an a-lister or not you know what i mean and 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 combining them and i i don't quite see what why like like osborne doesn't need I, I feel like you're wasting both Osborne and Carnage by combining them. Like, no, they, neither one needs the other to be to carry a story. I hope that the story sells me on it. I'll say, like, 
on its surface, like you, I'm not thrilled about it. I, I agree with what you're saying. I, I'm willing to let Dan Slott convince me that this is something that I need in my life. Because I think if you told me you're going to read a brain swap Spider-Man story, I would have said on the surface, no, that sounds really dumb. Uh, and and this this could be good, and maybe it's the way to do something new with Green Goblin. I mean, Dan Slott will be leaving the book the way he started it, which is shaking up Spider-Man in a significant way, or shaking up one of his key villains in a significant way. Maybe maybe it'll be interesting. Uh, I, I I'm not confident in how anybody handles symbiotes these days, so that's my big hesitation about this. Yeah, and I think that's fair. And and yeah, I mean, it's not even that I think it has. It's going to be dumb. It's it's. I'm not thinking that. I, I like I said. I just feel like yeah. I, I I you know, I would much rather have like a really cool symbiote story or a really cool Osborne story. And I feel like kind of combining those two is is a little too dissident for my taste. Like it, it's. I, like I mean, again, not to keep repeating myself, I just don't feel that these two characters need to be combined. And 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 kind of going back through history, I don't I don't know if Dan Slott has written a really like blow me away symbiote story, which also kind of makes me a little leery, right? I mean, am I missing something? I thought his like, superior Venom story was okay. Yeah, uh, I think we both were generally okay with that. And I liked his first issue of Flash Thompson as Venom. Okay. If that counts for anything. Sure, I guess. We can say yes to that. But other than Venom Inc., I think those are the only times he's really touched symbiotes. Am I wrong? Well, he brought in Anti-Venom as part of New Ways to Die, which not for nothing was probably my least favorite part of that story. Yeah, that's true. And I guess uh, Spider Island featured the symbiotes pretty prominently. Right. But you're right. He really hasn't done a proper Carnage story, um, and and he really hasn't done like a proper outside of Venom Inc. a proper Eddie Brock Venom story, or 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 even well again like Venom in during New Ways to Die was part of Thunderbolt, so it was kind of like he was an ancillary character. But so I mean maybe me criticizing it as moot because he also really just hasn't done anything. Period. That is like a pure symbiote Spider-Man story. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm curious about it. I mean, at the very least, the Goblin and Carnage share a similarity of being just kind of crazy insane, and maybe we'll find an interesting wrinkle there. I don't know. Um, you know, it'll it'll be interesting to see, like, if he goes totally v- over the top violent, like Carnage, uh, in like Maximum Carnage or any of his appearances, like. Serial killer Norman Osborn could be, uh, you know, maybe it, it'll be interesting. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you know, time will tell. Well, <laughs> the more important thing is, as a collector, does this count as the first appearance of the Red Goblin? Oh, oh God. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, what... <laughs> I wrote a I wrote a post on this once, Dan. Like, what's what's technically the first appearance of Venom? I know that's why I'm picking on you. Uh, well, 
Well, I have the comic either way, so it's not like, well, I don't own it, so thus it doesn't count. <laughs> right, but all the people that want to sell this comic, it really matters to them. Oh, sure. No, they 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 have the, this comic is collectible for the Scorp for the for the long held conclusion for Scorpio. All right, that you all right. that you apparently really wanted to hear, and I didn't. <laughs> well, I did. I'm, I'm going to be honest. Oh my god, I don't even know you anymore. Hey, I mean, like we haven't really talked about this, but I was excited to see like what it would mean that a guy knew a year's worth of things. Like, there's a cool story to be told there. That this story does nothing with, like he's got an hour's worth of knowledge, which means he's going to run to you know the clock tower and and do whatever. I mean, there's a cool moment where he says, you know, you may have defeated me, but since I know everything, there's something else that's been going on that's going to come and bite you in the butt, and that's interesting. I would have liked the whole story like that, where this guy has all this knowledge. I mean, ideally, right? He knows who Peter Parker is as Spider-Man if he if he has all this knowledge, right? There there could be something of done interesting regarding that that they do nothing really with. Yeah, he he's gonna know that. I don't even know. I, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> you just want to push this character to the dustbin of history. I I am not uh, I'm not Team Scorpio. Um, you know, I kind of like want to keep my Zodiac characters with my Nick Fury and shield books and, you know, keep my Spider-Man character. Cause again, it's not like Spider-Man's hurting for villains, <laughs> like best rogues gallery in Marvel. There's gotta be better stories we can tell. I I'd rather see carnage and green goblin than another Scorpio Zodiac story. Well, guess what? That's exactly what we're getting next. Well, I think we have like a Loki issue, and then we're getting back to that. Okay. Well, Loki. Anyway, what's your grade, Dan? I'm giving this one a C. All right. I'm going to be a little – probably a little more generous than I was in my review and say D plus again. I I have not come – have I gotten out of D yet? Did I say C minus on the last Venom story? I don't remember. I don't think so. I've been been lingering in the Ds for a while here, Dan. Maybe – I need, I need, I need something. Something's got to get me inspired again, Dan. Well, maybe it'll be this strange Loki issue. I hope so. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be more open-minded. When was the last time we saw Loki in this page? Is during the JMS run? Yeah, I think so. That that like 501 or 502 story or something like that. I think. Yeah, where they had hot dogs together. Yep. Who can forget? Uh, certainly not me. All right, whoo! It's like going down memory lane here in that review, Dan. Next up is uh, an issue that offers readers the long-awaited resolution to a story most of them probably forget about it. Uh, maybe you could call this a low-key payoff from the JMS run, right, Dan? Uh-huh. Uh, oh God, that's terrible. That was a terrible uh. joke, but but on par with my terrible jokes when I wrote all this copy. So. Uh, <laughs> Let's get right to Amazing Spider-Man 795, which debuted on our Patreon and is now here for you to listen to. Take it away, Mark. What's new?
you're here because you want to hear about Amazing Spider-Man number 795. Here is our review of it. This issue is by Dan Slott, Christos Gage, uh, with art from Mike Hawthorne and Terry Pallet. Dan, I guess this is the um, second part of the interlude or prelude, if you will, to what's going to be the big final arc of the Dan Slott uh, era on Amazing Spider-Man, Go Down Swinging. We have some big stuff happening in this issue. I actually heard some people say that this comic, uh, because of the final reveal, actually sold out of a bunch of LCSs, which is like, hello, I feel like I'm back in the 90s here. It's selling uh, for like 18 bucks online. Oh, man. And I just got my copy like it was nothing. I mean, my God. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, before we get to the big reveal and, and speculator bubble bursting, uh, why don't we talk a little bit about this comic itself? You know, it's it's funny that I, I as a whole quite enjoyed this comic and thought it was a decent bounce back, except for one thing, which almost ruined the entire comic for me. <laughs> it's, it's a huge thing. And you texted me, you're going to like this issue, but you're going to hate the one thing that I hate. And I texted you exactly what that one thing was. And, you know, we could talk about it now because it starts off the issue. Peter says you know, Mockingbird, you know, or whatever. He's referring to her as his girlfriend, or should I say ex-girlfriend. And I think probably there was a collective, uh, from yeah. everybody reading this comic. Yeah, I was like, is this some kind of, like, game he's playing so as not to reveal something? Or, like, you know, are they, like, going on the down low with their relationship? Like, I, I was kind of like, okay, what's what's the game being played here? And then... Uh, later on in the issue, Bobby meets Aunt May for lunch and awkwardly reveals that, yes, Peter and her broke up because on the plane ride back from London, they found they had nothing to talk about. And after how many months of this story, it's over. That's it. That's it. I mean, you know, I. Hey, even Carly Cooper got a better send off than that. Yeah, and and we we were just sold on this relationship. You and I have been saying that we actually have been digging this. So to have it kind of just be told to us that it wasn't working with no real evidence of it is really annoying. Yeah, I mean, and they even kind of I mean, when they shoehorned the Venom Inc story in, um they even kind of like had that attached that ending on to kind of remind us, oh, Peter and Bobby are still together, and Peter's leaving the toilet seat up, <laughs> you know what I mean, or whatever the whatever the eighties sitcom joke was uh, about the two of them. But I mean, like, it, it, there seemed to be continual effort that the two of them were together, and now they're not, and that just it's just sloppy is the word I keep coming back to, Dan. It just seems like sloppy, lazy writing. Um, because, you know, the powers that be want to rearrange the deck chairs a bit and set up for the last big arc and, you know, put the toys back in the box, whatever. Uh, maybe, you know, the new regime at Marvel doesn't like the idea of Spocking Bird. Where'd I come up with that, Dan? <laughs> uh, sorry. <laughs> what, what Mark is referring to is that in the letters page at the end of the issue, uh, there's a letter that uses the word Spocking Bird, and the editor who's wrote, responding to the letters on the ed editor's page, or the letters page, says, Spocking Bird, I like that. 
Did, were you the one to come up with that? And I don't know, Mark. I don't know how you read this, but when I first read it, I was like, wait, does the editor not even <laughs> know about this thing that was written in the book he's editing? Did you, or, or was it just a joke? Like, oh, we've used that and we quite like – I mean, how did you take it? I, I, I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt and say, oh, it was just a joke. But, man, the fact that it could be interpreted the other kind of speaks to some of the issues in terms of how books in the House of Ideas have been managed these days. So yeah. the bigger issue that we might even be led down the path that the editor wouldn't know what his own writing team is doing with turn of phrase and whatnot. Well, we even had in the the cha- a champions issue recently. I don't know if you read this. There was a champions issue where uh, Miles is in it, and one of the characters refers to Miles' girlfriend, or he refers to his girlfriend, and it shows this image of him and Spider Gwen. And it's like, did they even read this book? They weren't boyfriend and girlfriend. It's no. like Mark Wade just saw the cover of Spider-Man and Spider-Gwen and was like, oh, they must be dating now. And no editor bothered to correct him. Like these kind of mistakes are really dumb ones that have been popping up all over the place. But this whole status quo with the boyfriend and girlfriend of Peter and Mockingbird, you, you can't help but think an editor was like, hey, let's end this thing now because there's no, in no way does it seem organic uh, in fact, I thought you mentioned that the uh, the whole like joke at the end of the previous Venom Inc. issue where uh, Venom was destroying the bathroom or destroyed her bathroom. I thought at the beginning of this issue, oh my god, did she really break up with him for destroying her bathroom? That's certainly – I don't think I, – I no. Well, obviously that's not what they ended up revealing. I mean that probably would have at least – while also a very kind of lazy solution – would have at least made more sense than like breaking up on an airplane. Like I, I I just don't, I don't get it, Dan, but is it how they bonded on an airplane? They first realized they had something in common by talking on an airplane. Yeah. It just seems very odd. And like you said, not the least bit organic and kind of cheap. And, you know, again, they've been, they put so much effort into trying to sell this. I think you, you came to it faster than I did, but I started coming around to it. And, um, yeah. And then just to kind of pull the plug on it. So abruptly smacks of the, the heavy hand of editorial interference, but you know, I'm sure we'll never actually hear the true story behind that. And, and, and again, like it's, it's, I don't want to dwell on it too, too much, although it is a very huge demerit against this issue which for the rest of the issue was quite enjoyable. And I think that's – it kind of speaks volumes to what's just been going on with, with Spider-Man lately is, is you know, we've actually been in a run of pretty good issues and then we kind of got some schlock thrown in there and kind of stunned us a bit. And you're kind of like, you know, is this – are we reverting back to some of the less enjoyable runs of, you know, arcs of this run? And – when you see something like this kind of get inserted in with the, the grace of a, of a rivet gun, um, <laughs> you're just kind of like, you know, what, what's going on here? Like, like why, wh- where, where is, you know, like I felt like 
Dan Slott and the whole creative team had kind of found an elegance to their creations again. And, and, you know, between Venom Inc. and now stuff like this, like that elegance is kind of slipping a bit again. And it's just, it's just very puzzling. And, you know, maybe with this out of the way, whether you think it should be out of the way or not, putting that aside, you know, we can focus on this telling the story that wants to be told here, which is clearly Norman Osborn and the Carnage symbiote, which we'll get to as we get to it. Um, but in the meantime, we had a pretty cool story with Loki as Doctor Strange paying back a favor from Amazing Spider-Man 503. Did anyone remember this favor, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> 300 issues later, we're going to pay off. Let it be said, Dan Slott will not let a single plot thread continue to dangle. Everything has to be concluded when he's done his run. There won't be a single offhanded mention, you know, of something that hasn't been paid off. It's it's worth noting on a personal note here, Dan, that um, 503 actually is of some personal significance for me. It's, it is the first issue of Spider-Man I got from uh, mail order subscription when I – because – I had, you know, when I finally started getting back into Spider-Man in the uh, early 2000s, I had, um, you know, I was picking up some of the JMS Ramita Jr. run. Um, and even then, I, I was still kind of I wasn't getting to the comic book shop um, frequently enough to get it as it was coming out. So I was like, that's it. If I'm really going to collect every single issue of Amazing Spider-Man, I got to make sure I reliably get the newest issues. Um, so I put in a, uh, you know, ordered my subscription and, um, lo and behold, 503 was the first one to come through. And I was like, what's this thing with Loki and like some like street kids, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and Morwen, who could forget the villain Morwen? Who can, I, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, and Loki's daughter, like that's what it's really about is Spider-Man. Yes saved Loki's daughter who was infected by this spirit named Morwen. And this is during the whole, you know, she was like this wasp spirit thing from the whatever dimension. And right. she was coming after Spider-Man's totem. Who, who, who could forget? Who could forget? Clearly a lot of people. And like I said, even though this issue had significance to me, Dan, I was not sitting there here the last... 10 years and change saying, when is Loki ever going to pay back Spider-Man? <laughs> <laughs> but we got it regardless. And it's kind of a fun little story and, and in what's going on. And I actually thought the, uh, you know, the final moment made sense to me, like uh, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but the, you know, the, the eventual twist is that Loki set up a false scenario so that he could erase this, uh, debt that he owed Spider-Man because he's got some ultimate other plans and he doesn't want a hero to have anything that could undo him. And I thought, okay, well, that actually really makes sense, especially, you know, reading along with Doctor Strange recently and all the plot twists that are happening there. Yeah, I mean, I, I have not been reading Doctor Strange, but I thought this did a really good, this being Amazing Spider-Man um, 795 did a really good job of kind of just filling me in on what was going in over there. I mean, like, this is this is a really very strong issue in that regard. Kind of harkens back to the to the Silver Age of comics. You know, every comic is somebody's first comic, and that 
you know, I, I, I really got a full picture of a lot of different things going on in the Marvel Universe here. And, of course, of, of Spider-Man's character and Loki's character in, in a very entertaining way. And, um, you know, I, I kind of skipped ahead a little bit here. But, you know, it is worth noting um, also in this comic, like like New York definitely seems to be a character. Again, we got Peter back in his little dinky apartment. I mean, you know, we're kind of going backwards in time and in some aspects of storytelling here, but these are not necessarily bad things to be mining for a Spider-Man story, in my opinion. One thing I want to keep on, uh, an eye on as these stories continue is the weather, because we, this is one of the few New York in snow issues that we've gotten in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man. We were talking about this when we were talking about the Stegron issue mm-hmm. is that we so rarely see new york with snow and then when it does show up it's like it's immediately summer the next issue so i'd be curious to see if if 796 if this snow is still hanging around although anybody yeah. that lives in new york knows that the snow often falls and then a day later everything is melted or gross and sludgy for for eternity but we did have a very cold December, Dan, which is what I'm thinking probably when this issue was finalized. So, <laughs> yeah, you're you're probably right. So it was fresh in our minds. Um, but but no, I mean, but it, it, it's again, these are the fun little things of New York being the character um, that that I think are important in Spider-Man. I mean, more more in Spider-Man than I think most Marvel comics. And um, again, like this, just this comic outside of the one thing i mean it just felt very confident and breezy um you know when when gage is is credited that usually means he's writing um the dialogue i felt the dialogue was very crisp it was funny without being too corny there were no um cell phone ringtone jokes um you know, like it was it was a really brisk quick moving issue in a lot of regards and and paying off things that i, I never was looking to get paid off for, but was kind of happy that they were dealt with the way they were dealt with. But there was a share joke. So just add that into the column of female pop singer jokes in okay. the pages of Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, I must I must have forgotten that. I'm sorry. I guess I was I was taken so aback with Bobby uh, Bobby's breakup that I uh, <laughs> missed the share joke. You probably didn't notice it because it was a good joke for once. So <laughs> it didn't okay. draw too much attention to itself. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I like the the resurgence of New York, seeing the water towers and everything. But you know, a part of New York that gets mentioned here is this Uncle Ben Foundation. You know, uh, Aunt May continues her long line of charitable work, uh, and you know, don't hire Aunt May into your charitable foundation because first it was Feast, and now it's the Uncle Ben uh, Foundation. She has a bad track record of being you know, part of bringing these things down. Poor Aunt May. Um, but I, I, I actually liked May as a whole, this issue. I felt like, I don't know, it's kind of hard to talk about growth for a character that has been this elderly woman for, you know, the length of her existence. But there seemed to be, you know, like a kind of serenity now attitude to how she was talking about things and even how she was dealing with Bobby. I don't know. I liked, I liked May in this issue. I think that's just all I need to say on that. Yeah, I agree. Um, uh, although I, I, I still long for the days where Aunt May knew Peter's, you know, alternate identity. It, it just feels like that's the one kind of thing that could click in and make 
this a little, a little more interesting for her character. You know, we've got her. She's just on the, like, fault line for all that. Like, everything in her life, it, like, her husband died. And then, you know, resurrection stuff and Spider Island. She's got so, all these, like, things. She's still, like, a weird character you have to send off or keep just in the dark enough. Like, Peter is dating this super spy does she know about that? You know, like right. there's, there's so many, like she, it's just, it's just so much easier to have her know, and the drama becomes better when she knows. So I, I'm happy with it, but I, I still have to say I, I miss that status quo every time she appears in these books. That's totally fair. And hey, you know we got issue 800 coming up, which is which is uh, double the number of issues where Aunt May first discovered Peter's identity. Of course, it was an actress hired to play Aunt May. But you never know, Dan. <laughs> you this never could know. be an actress. I don't. I, I've not trusted Aunt May ever since that issue. Who's right. to say there's not a whole cabal of actresses? There you go. Oh, it's a cabal, you say. <laughs> um, so, so speaking of people who hire actresses or cabal of actresses, of course, the the big reveal here with. Carnage and Norman Osborn, which is again spiking the speculator bubble boom. You know, I thought this was from um, a story a story wise aspect well done. Um, I still have major reservations about putting Norman together with the Carnage symbiote. I just feel like neither needs it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like it's it's you know taking. Two things that are pretty good on their own. I mean, I shouldn't say, I, you know, I'm not a big Carnage person, but I respect the fact that he's an event by himself. And thus, Norman Osborn is an event by himself. So it's kind of like taking, you know, filet mignon and, I don't know, uh, really good chocolate cake and just serving them together. I don't know if it needs that. How about one on, one after the other? I, you know, like, that's just me. Um, Mark, but, you've given me an idea. Okay. <laughs> Chocolate filet mignon cake. I love it. All right. There you go. Make it happen. Better than Canadian bacon. Had to get that in there. Um, <laughs> but, 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 before I totally go off, off the rails here, I did enjoy what we're seeing unfold here with um, Osborne and, and Carnage. This kind of struggle between... Osborne wanting wanting to be insane, but not quite carnage insane. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was really refreshing because I thought for sure the conclusion of this issue would have like, you know, them teaming up and going, we're better together. And this big, you know, like grin with the carnage blade and the, and, and the pumpkin bombs. And instead, you know, I, I, I expect that this status quo is going to be constantly changing issue after issue. Because it seems like the Red Goblin didn't appear in this issue. It's just Carnage exerting his full will over Norman Osborn. And to me, that's really interesting because, like, you think about these things, you're like, oh, well, clearly he's just going to be powering himself up. But here it seems like the Carnage symbiote idea was a mistake, and he's immediately regretting it. Yeah, because, I mean, he he's still Norman Osborn. He still has his sights on on power and and dominance and carnage just wants chaos i mean you know this was something that i felt jerry conway tapped into better than anyone in recent years in terms of writing carnage this idea of him as a not just a villain or or a sociopath but a force of nature and this 
this seems to be just total force of nature. Like I'm going to, I'm going to blow through this area, like a F five hurricane here or F five tornado, I should say with Norman Osborn, like attached at the hip here. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, and, and like you said, it, it's, it's good to kind of see a struggle because that's going to create conflict in itself. It's not just, it's not just Norman Osborn is mighty and powerful now. I mean, you know, this, this is, there's, there's some real stakes going on and, and maybe this is not going to go exactly the direction we think it's going to go. Yeah. I mean, if I was a guessing man, I would suspect that the red goblin was an interesting hook that we'll get for maybe an issue. But the real thing that's going to be happening here is that, you know, this symbiote is going to drive Norman Osborn to the brink of insanity and, and thus allow him to reconnect with his green goblinness. I mean, we're even seeing some cover solicits that show the green goblin on the cover and whether that's to hide the red goblin or not, like I, I suspect that, like I said earlier, we're going to see a constant shifting in this status quo for this character um, as this storyline unfolds. Yeah. And and um, in terms of like negative thoughts about this, and I won't even say it's a negative, but like, you know, I thought as a whole, Mike Hawthorne's art was decent in this issue. But man, having that reveal at the end and thinking what would this have looked like if it was Stuart Eminem, right? Yeah, well, it's it's frustrating because, I mean, I imagine Eminem designed the Red Goblin character, and I guess we're going to see that full reveal probably, like, soon. But you have to think that, you know, part of designing and coming and, you know, working on this idea would be that he would get that defining moment. So, yeah, you, you can't help but wonder. But I still thought Hawthorne did a pretty decent job. I love that he um, returns to that kind of uh, idea that we – talked to uh, Mark Bagley about all the way back in like the fourth ever episode of our show <laughs> where he told us that the idea was this kind of bullet wound to the chest that was spreading over carnage. And if you look at that image, you know, it does look exactly like how he described the black spider, almost like a bullet hole of blood that's spreading over the symbiote. And it's something, you know, I haven't seen in recent iterations of carnage. And so I, I'm happy to kind of see that, that kind of design aesthetic return. Definitely. Yeah. I didn't even think about how it was a callback to that, but that's a good point. And yeah, it was, it was, yeah, I, I don't, I don't mean to diss Hawthorne here. I mean, I think his art was good. It was just, again, I mean, Eminem has been on such a hot streak with this book. I mean, even, even in some of the issues that we weren't as much in love with the story, I mean, Eminem's art was, was a tour de force and thinking about, seeing these two characters together for the first time, seeing our chocolate filet mignon cake together, finally. <laughs> uh, perfectly seasoned and baked. Um, a, a medium rare in the center with chocolate oozing out of it. Um, just going. I thought that Hawthorne had a real trouble with uh, doing Mockingbird. There's like a scene where um, she meets up with Aunt May in like the uh, Soho Cafe and right. the face is like always weirdly drawn or like crunched into like weird distorted proportions. Uh, I think his his costume work was pretty pretty good, not yeah, on the level like, of Eminem, but yeah, some of the characters' faces he really struggles with. 
Right. But like Spidey on the subway with the scarf. I mean, you know, stuff like that looked good, I thought. Yeah, and I, anybody that draws water towers and, and, and subways in New York into this book will get like a, a positive vote on, uh, for me because that kind of stuff, you know, it isn't necessary. Um, and, uh, you know, his, the facades of his buildings are incredibly detailed, and, and I just love that kind of stuff returning in this, into this book. What, what did you think of – we didn't really talk about much about the conflict in this issue, the – the like insects, I think they're called the fire wasps of Faltine. What did you oh. think of this whole thing? And like that, the, the, they had this hemming and hawing over the kill code. Oh, I mean, they were pretty forgettable for the most part. I mean, like I said, I was more taken by some of these other elements. I mean, I kind of felt that they just kind of served as a means to an end to kind of advance the plot, but I didn't really buy the stakes and you know, the hemming and hawing of the kill code all that much. I mean, you know, this seems like kind of a a waste of ammunition to, you know, <laughs> in terms of one of the sacred the sacred parts of Spider-Man's persona. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a placeholder, you know, for a more interesting villain, which I don't think was really called for here, right? Like, Loki is the key alternate figure to Spider-Man in this story, and and I thought Loki was very well portrayed. You know, that, that, that twist, you're waiting for there to be, like, a drop of the hat. And when it actually happens, it's like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what Loki would do. No, Loki, Loki was fun here. I mean, I have not read a lot of Loki since the um, – really since the Marvel Cinematic Universe took hold. And I think probably, you know, reignited interest in the character. But, um, you know, again, I like I – like, this current iteration of the character for the most part. Yeah. He's been through a lot of weird things over the past few years, like whether it's like repeatedly changing his sex or his like visual appearance. I feel like every time I see the character, it, you know, he, it, whatever Loki is, is completely different than the last time I saw Loki. Yeah. Uh, you want to give a grade? Yeah, sure. Uh, this one's, I guess it's like a, boy, it's so hard to do a grade on this one with the Mockingbird thing. Because, like, how do you yeah. how do you include that in the grade? Does it just, like, knock it down in a letter grade? I, I, it's, it's, it's like a whole separate thing. I don't know. It's like a C plus B minus to me. Yeah, I was just, I was going to say without the Mockingbird thing on its old, this is like a B plus for me. But I think the Mockingbird thing mock, knocks us down to a C plus. And now for something completely different. Mark stepped out of the room, and so it's a great time for me to introduce a discussion of an annual without him knowing about it. So we're going to be talking about Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 42. It just came out in between these two issues that we're doing on the show. So uh, I hope you're ready to strap yourself in and listen to this extra long review episode. What's new? Today we're going to be talking about Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 42, and this one definitely counts. Man, the fact that 
we're giving away an annual review as part of like exclusive content that people are paying for, Dan. I feel very un- unsettled about this. You should, Mark. But uh, uh, this one is actually, I mean, like to get things started in regards to this counting, this is Dan Slott's first annual, which is kind of weird to think about considering how long he's been on the book. He's never written a full annual before. Right, right. And and he does the main story here, um, just in case I, a couple of people had asked me about that. They were like, oh, but does Dan just do like a backup? No, no, he does the real thing here. I mean, of course, you know, Dan, you know, me throwing some shade as always, I, I, I do have to ask, well, you know, if annuals were all that special, why didn't Dan Slot write all the annuals that he was working on the book for at the time? Uh, well, you know, it's a, it's a good point. I mean, we got a great one from Christos Gage a few years back. Right. Um, but you're right. They have been kind of treated like inventory collections over the past few years. You know, um, I would say like the, the past five years has been kind of a not great time for annuals. I guess between this and the superior annual, you know, we've not gotten very uh, a, a very consistent uh, you know storytelling. Although I, I think this and and the other one were are kind of rather good stories and, and showcase what can really be done in the annual that can't be done in a typical comic. Correct. So um, just before we, we get into what, what we're talking about in terms of what's in the annual, let's just also note that uh, the art team on this one, it's Corey Smith, Terry Pallet, and Brian Reber. Um, and yeah, Dan, you know, it's, if, if I may, um, if you're going to do an annual and have it actually have an impact to some degree, or at least, be you know part of canon in a way that means something uh this is this is how you do it i mean you know here here we're kind of going back to dead momore clone conspiracy whatever the heck we're calling that story these days we're we're kind of dealing with i wouldn't say this is something that people have been clamoring for per se but um you know there was an interaction between the clone of ned Leeds and betty brant uh her his his uh widow before um during that during that storyline and this kind of like works to resolve it in a way that that is fun i feel like it kind of harkens back to the hobgoblin lives miniseries in terms of stories starring betty brant that kind of show her doing some research uh in her or her late husband's name there's no hobgoblin references here though which is always sad for me <laughs> i could uh, <laughs> i could feel your pain while reading this comic i was like right. every page i turn that the hobgoblin doesn't show up Mark, Mark is, uh, is like losing blood or sleepover. Yeah. <laughs> but, but like, you know, this is, this is a story that operates mostly independently from what's going on in the main book, yet ties into the main book and, 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 and feels like it, it, it has value. And I, I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed it immensely. I didn't, I, there were elements that I feel you know, Dan Slott, I think, was actually purposely going for something a little different here in terms of the, the genre of story that we kind of devolved into here. And I don't know if um, in the strictest sense he always executed it perfectly uh, in terms of how that genre of story should be told. But I think from uh, you know looking at it through the lens of a Spider-Man comic, this was pretty entertaining. Yeah, I mean, to me, this was like... Yeah, we had talked in our our, our you know, first three legacy reviews that there was no real like villain to those stories, and and that it was just kind of Peter resetting his status quo. And to me, this felt like 
you know, the tone of this story and the kind of promise of the legacy were all kind of delivered on in this story. Like, this is what we could get out of the relaunch. And, and, and I, I really enjoyed it for that. I mean, there's still ramifications from Parker Industries, but this feels like a really classic Spider-Man tale to me. I mean, yes, including some of the kind of, like, old-fashioned hokiness and uh, schemes that are, like, a bit implausible, you know, or are or, or, or too goofy for their own good. But, like, this to me falls right in the line with kind of the golden age of, of what I expect a Spider-Man comic to be. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, you know, again, to kind of go back to what I was rambling about in the intro there in terms of the, the genre stuff. I mean, you know, we, 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 we're, this comic focuses on these, these words that Ned uh, allegedly said to Betty on, on the phone during clones, clone conspiracy, which was blood Creek. And it was like, what is blood Creek? And as, as Betty does her, her research into this, it's actually, it starts out as a, a joint story between her, with her and Peter at the bugle. Like Peter is taking it from the, the science angle, which is kind of interesting. Uh, <laughs> but, um, it, as it turns out to be, it's, it is basically this huge conspiracy theory over a battle in the Revolutionary War that never happened. Never actually happened. Was was faked to be believed to have happened, which is kind of it's inter- that's an interesting take, right? <laughs> well, it, to me, it's silly because New York is full of historical relevance. Uh, I mean, the ultimate design of creating this thing was so that they could erect a statue right in the middle of all the kind of like central government area of New York City that is made out of tritium. A, a wonderful Spider-Man 2 reference, <laughs> um, my precious tritium, and this is like basically an H-bomb they could activate to blow up all the leaders of New York if the Magia so wanted to. Yeah, I was going to say that they here is the, the criminal underworld of New York, uh, meaning like Wilson Fisk and the Magia, and we even get the, the clones of the Enforcers here. So this is like a, a street-level underworld story to the, to, the, to the hilt here. It's even more specific than that. Than that. It's the Undermob uh, run by the Carnelli family. And do you remember when the Carnellis last appeared in Amazing no, Spider-Man? I- I don't, Dan. Please tell me. Uh, you may remember a certain Mysterio arc that Dan Slott wrote during the Brand New uh, Day run. Yes. Uh, that was the Carnelli family. That's Amazing Spider-Man 616 to 618. If I'm going to get nerdy here for a second, excuse me, let me push up my taped-up <laughs> glasses. There you go. All right. So there you Way go. Way to go, Dan. Way to go. The Carnelli family, everyone. Uh, you've been waiting for their return, and here they are. Um, so, yes, my, my, continuing my thought, it's like, why create this fake battle that someone could look up or you have to do the work of scrubbing off the internet or whatever when there is there are plenty of real battles you could just pull from and build a statue that would be much far less inconspicuous, like far more inconspicuous than than a like fake battle. Do, do you see what I'm saying, Mark? Yes, I agree. And 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 the fact that like you know what kind of thrusted this forward was that this was a story that Ned Leeds was looking into before he was um, murdered as the Hobgoblin. If I may get that out there again, um, I think that also also adds like it, it, it's one of those. It's one of those retcons where you kind of like go, hmm, but does 
does actually buying into this in full create more continuity issues than it than it solves? Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of like, you know, would it, would this really have been something that Ned was looking into at the time? I mean, wasn't he like also like looking into like the what was it the foreigner and <laughs> and all these other, and like Flash Thompson sleeping with his wife and uh, you know he had a lot going on before he died, Dan. <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah. Um, um, uh, and even Dan Slott seems to acknowledge that in this issue, there's a bunch of like Game of Thrones references. Like Dan Slott is taking out some of his criticism of season seven of Game of Thrones in this book as a way <laughs> to kind of like acknowledge that it is kind of ludicrous and that these stories sometimes need these logic jumps in order to pull them off. And and I'll say these things are like weird and goofy, but they didn't really bother me all that much. It it is similarly in line with a lot of silly comic book stories that we've gotten over the years. Well, I think that's just it. I think if you read this under the auspice that it's a comic book story, I think you're you can be fine with it. I think if you like are actually kind of looking at this as one might read something like The Da Vinci Code, you're going to be like whoa, this has got some ma- – I mean, not that the Da Vinci Code is perfect. <laughs> That's got some massive <laughs> plot holes and logic gaps. But this this is like – I mean, you could park a truck through some of the logic gaps and plot holes uh, with the actual mystery at the premise here. You know, I mean, that's that's all I mean by kind of knocking it a little bit. I, I it, it's, it's – I mean, Dan Slott by, by trade is not a mystery writer. And it shows. <laughs> yeah. My, my favorite comment in this whole thing is come from the Kingpin where he acknowledges, you know, maybe we should have taken care of that Blood Creek thing when, when I first came into office. You know, the H-bomb right outside of my <laughs> office window. Which, again, um, I, I, you know, admittedly, I'm not reading a ton of Marvel outside of the spider office right now. But, but him becoming mayor is a fairly recent development, right? Yeah, it, um, it it happened, uh, you know, after Secret Empire. Uh, you know, if you read, uh, I believe it was the Doctor Strange issues of Secret Empire, the Kingpin kind of teams up with Doctor Strange and Spider-Woman to kind of bring down Baron Mordo and, and the, the dark bubble and kind of wins over the city in his kind of act of heroism during that thing. But it is... You know, like any kingpin thing, all duplicitous nonsense. You know right. what I mean? Um, so, I mean, an interesting development. Do I really buy that anybody in the city would vote for kingpin as mayor? Not really, but like, right. it's kind of fun—a kind of fun development, if you will. Right. I mean, like, would anyone believe that a reality TV star who shouts racial things would be elected? All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, shh, don't bring reality into this. Anything is possible. Um, so, um, yeah, I, 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 you know, and again, like other other kind of weird hiccups I had with this. I mean, like the the, the character that this statue is modeled after. Um, it's kind of like, who is this guy? <laughs> right? He's a Carnelli, Mark. You haven't been waiting since issue six eighteen to see him come back. Exactly. I guess. I guess. I guess I'm off in that. Um, but like, you know, like you're telling me that there's no one else from like Spider-Man Mythos that would have been 
someone they could have used for that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Like, the Rose would have been great, especially since they tried to, like, hide this guy's appearance early in the issue. Like, in the kind of smoke room, right? They're in, like, a sauna, and he's, like, behind, like, a veil of smoke. You think it's going to be a big character you've been waiting to return. Right. And instead, it's just kind of like, oh. And, and, um... Yeah, it's 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 a it's a very odd reveal, you know. Again, um, trying to think of like other stuff. You 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 seem to be into a, a, a meeting between Glory and Betty here, right, Dan? Oh well, I did tweet about that. So like, there's this scene where uh, Glory and Betty meet up in the park right next to the Blood Creek statue slash H bomb, uh, and uh, <laughs> I just want to reiterate that it's an yeah. H bomb, right. essentially. And, um, uh, you know, I, I called this out, I don't know, years ago, Mark, where, uh, you know, uh, Carly Cooper had uh, met up with uh, Mary Jane. And you and I, the book kind of played that for some kind of like, oh, they're going to get together and, and kind of talk to each other. And, and I, I had said, you know, it, it, it kind of paints how shallow these the appearances of these characters are in this book that when two women meet up, the only assumption is that they're going to be talking about Peter or a man. And ever since then, I've always called out any scenes where two women are meeting to talk because there's this thing called the Bechdel test. And it basically is this, uh, you know, this test created by Alison Bechdel um, about how female characters are presented in movies. They need to, you know, it's an arbitrary test, but kind of a good way to determine whether a script is actually paying service to female characters. And, and her rules are that there is more than one female character in the movie in a leading role, that um, those two female characters talk to each other at some point, and they talk to each other about something other than a man. And as far as I can like think back, it's very hard for me to think of a single scene in a Spider-Man comic that passes that test. And so when these scenes are about to happen to so this one, I was like really excited. I was like, oh, Glory and, you know, uh, Car- uh, uh, Betty are going to meet up and, and maybe they're going to talk about something that's not about a man. And very quickly they start talking about Ned Leeds. So they fail the Bechdel test. Um, and to me, it's a reflection of there never being any female ta- uh, creative talent on any of these, uh, any amazing Spider-Man book, uh, you know, as far as I can remember, Mark, how do you feel about all this? No, I think I think it's a it's a great point, and I mean, you know, you're talking about Spider-Man comics and the Bechdel test. I mean, I, it probably applies to Spider-Man movies and and, and other media as well. I mean, it, it just seems like, you know, all of the female characters are, you know, they're either hung up on Peter or or you know. Or Uncle Ben, or Jameson, or you know what I mean. Like it's just, it just kind of always comes back to that. Um, with that said, and I don't disagree with anything you just said there. I, I did, I did enjoy this comic being focused on Betty, even if it didn't pass the Bechdel test. Because it, 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 like I said, I, I, it, it definitely brought me back to Hobgoblin Lives in some ways. And like it, it's like I, I feel like Betty Brand is a character that, um kind of like gets molded to fit whatever the writer wants to do with her at the time. And if the writer wants to treat her as a serious member of the supporting cast who has depth, 
she can be used that way, but most creators don't feel that way about her. So, like, when someone does, like we have here, it kind of, like, she's an... I find her to be an interesting character. And, again, maybe I only find her to be interesting because she's been in some interesting stories. But, like, it's just something where I wish we would see this more often with her. Well, Dan Slott seems to have a fondness for her and Peter's relationship. You know, if he ever chooses a friend to do a friendship issue with, it's typically Betty. Yeah, I mean, and and even though there was that one issue, the Obama issue, that I think Mark Wade wrote actually wrote the main story in that, and that's a great Peter and Betty issue. But yes, more often than not, like there was the the prelude to Spider Island about Betty being in the hospital that um, Dan Slott wrote, and and you're right. I mean, it, it seems like there has at least been some acknowledgement in in recent years to to put the focus on Betty where you can, but. Um, more often than not, she's kind of treated as, uh, you know, kind of, a, you know, whether she's joining a suicide cult um, like she did in the 80s <laughs> um, or, um, you know, even like um, the, the whole love triangle with her, Flash and Ned during the, the DeFalco Friends years. I mean, that it, 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 I feel like it never really put Betty in a great light in terms of the kind of character she could be within this universe. And, and, a, and a story like this kind of puts her on the right track, in my opinion. Well, speaking of uh, this universe uh, and Betty, there's some weird, like, Marvel Universe stuff in this that, like, I always have trouble with squaring, and I I feel like I should just let it go. But, like, for example, in, in, but in this book, they kind of, like, really hammer down on it. Like, there's scenes yeah. with um, Montana, like, who's going out of his way several times to say that there's, like, no hell or no afterlife, even though we know that to be true of the Marvel Universe. Right. And and the same is true with like Peter being such a jerk to Betty when they go to see this, you know, psychic. Like I guess Peter would probably know that this is a phony psychic, but we've seen and Peter has seen more importantly tons of mystical stuff. You know, so why why be so rude about it to someone that's clearly in pain in the way that Betty is? Yeah, it, it's a good point. I mean, it, it's it's a way of like I feel like trying to create contemporary and real life drama in a story, but loses sight of the fact that you're in the highly fictionalized world here. I mean, it's um, like anytime we get a Christmas issue, it's like, is Jesus really a thing in the Marvel universe considering like there are actual gods that they're interacting with on a day to day basis? It, well, exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of absurd. I mean, you know, anyone who's been in, the same room with Doctor Strange. Like, why are you really getting hung up on a psychic? <laughs> yeah. Or maybe just take Betty to Doctor Strange. There you go. Yeah. Like, hey, I got a friend. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's an interesting thing. But again, like, uh, for the most part, I thought this was fun. Um, I, I, I enjoyed Corey Smith's artwork here. I mean, I don't think it, it's anything on the level of, like, Stuart Eminem or anything, but, like, it was fun, like especially the infiltration of the, like the library at the mayor's office. Like I thought that was a very fun sequence, both from a story standpoint and from a visual standpoint of like Peter kind of like create or Spider-Man creating a diversion with the Kingpin's goons and stuff like that. I mean, do you agree with that? Yeah, I totally agree. And and adding on to that, I like the subway uh, sequence that kind of rounds at the end of this, even if it ended weirdly abruptly. Like you never really see Spider-Man defeat these guys, and then they're in jail for some reason. Right. right. Um, but I thought it was like the action was really well laid out. I liked seeing Peter not have web fluid 
It was the only time I'll say that that was endearing, probably because I haven't seen it in such a long time. But uh, I loved seeing these kind of updated versions of the Enforcers and uh, in confined spaces like that. It reminded me a lot, actually, of kind of Learning Curve and Mm -hmm, the visuals mm -hmm. from Learning Curve. This is kind of like a dumber version of Learning Curve, (laughs) if you will. But, like, I'll take a dumber version of Learning learning Curve. That's a great story. One of our essentials, Mark. Yeah. Exactly. And of course, um, you know, the other big thing we should probably note here um, is the the Ned Leeds uh, homeless spare change reveal. Was there really any doubt about this character? (laughs) I don't think so. I mean, like when you give a background character a line, you know, out of nowhere, to me at least, I was like, oh, yeah, that's Ned Leeds. Yeah, that's quite the Chekhovian gun. (laughs) Did, Did you pick up on it immediately? I actually got I got it on the second one because I uh, think there was three, right? There was three scenes with him. Well, before. he he later straight up is like defending the statue from you know the butler or whatever, right? Um, right. And and that makes sense, right? I mean, like if this guy knew that this was a bomb, you know, and he could be incognito, he could just yeah. live in that park and keep his eye on it all the time. Although I don't right. know why he stopped re- reaching out to Betty. <laughs> Like, well, because, you know, we had a story to tell, Dan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's he, fine. Yeah, but he does get one last byline because, you know, Betty ends up sharing the byline with her late husband. Peter gets no byline, but it's kind of cool with it. Hopefully, like, that doesn't mean he gets fired by Robbie. Because <laughs> Robbie's pretty cold. Robbie, Robbie, Robbie will just fire you, man. <laughs> We've noticed that lately. <laughs> Uh, so what do you think about Ned Leeds being back? I mean, I don't really know how that worked out with the clone conspiracy thing. Like, they, they say that he melted away, so I'm guessing he didn't. I don't know how he saved himself, you know, short of turning himself into a lizard. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, I don't know how he's back. I'm sure we'll get that at some point. Probably not in this Dan Slot run. Um, but how do you feel about Ned coming back? Or even just the enforcers coming back? Yeah, but that's uh, – well, I guess my, my answer to that is just – how back is back. You know what I mean? Like, are, are we talking about using them in a story every once in a while, or is like Ned going to be ingrained in the supporting cast again? I doubt it's the latter. So I don't know. I mean, like, like, like let's see what happens. I mean, are we going to see, are, are we ever going to see Gwen again? Because her ending was ambiguous during the clone conspiracy. I mean, we presume that she was killed, but we actually didn't see that for certain. Right. I mean, they could both be the red goblin. There you go. So, um, how great would it be if um, Ned did double jeopardy rules and decided, well, now I'm actually going to be the hobgoblin? Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they'll never expect it. Ned Leeds yeah. will be the hobgoblin. Then him and Daniel Kingsley and Roderick Kingsley will all just fight. <laughs> there you go. That's uh, that's a story. Well, you heard it here first, and until that happens. <laughs> you know. Well, every, everything else that we say on this show gets lifted for stories, Dan, so let's just keep going with it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, uh, before we do a grade here, I had to, uh, I had to do a shout-out to something that I'm pick- you know, continuing to pick up on is the obligatory reference to a female musician in the pages of Spider-Man comics. It's not just like pop music. It's, it, it's female musicians, and this time Alanis Morissette. Yeah, definitely a throwback to the past, probably to the time where Ned Leeds was last alive, uh, according to the timeline of his comic book, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, has, has it been since the 90s, I guess? 
I, I don't even. Well, I mean, I who knows with the timelines in these comics. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Mark, uh, you want to grade this thing? Yeah, I'm gonna give it a B. I think it was pretty solid. I enjoyed it. I mean, you know, I'm not about to like enshrine this in like the stories of the century, but it was good. It was fun. Yeah, I'm gonna give it a, a B plus. Look at you! Look, look at, at the, you! Look it's, at it's us! Cause it's because it's an it's because it's an annual, isn't it? Well, I might as well give it an A plus then. There you go. <laughs> oh, do you oh, want to talk God. about any of these backup stories? Well, there was the the one by the um the Broadway playwright, right? From Come From Come Come From Away, I think is the name of the the show, the musical that he wrote. Yeah, David Hine. Yeah, I mean, it was it was harmless. I mean, it definitely portrayed Spider Sense in a way that. I didn't realize it would be so accurate that it could like tell that shrimp is bad or that you got gingivitis, but hey, you know, I guess I guess it could be anything. <laughs> yeah, as a throwaway backup story, I thought it was like well illustrated and it was funny, if not completely changing how Spider Sense works. Right. I always do find it interesting when someone who's not really a comic book person comes on and does Spider-Man, they always seem to kind of gravitate towards Spider-Sense and they always seem to kind of want to pump it up in a way where you're like, I, I don't know if it really works that way, but okay, you're having fun, I guess. I don't want to discourage you. <laughs> I, I got a genuine laugh out of the ginger, gingivitis thing. So like, so long as you can kind of put that aside, you can enjoy this story. It's It, it was a very traditional B story in a Spider-Man annual. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean like it's a total, total inventory evergreen um, story. But like you said, it, it, it was clever and, and well illustrated enough to not offend my sensibilities. My barometer is now, is it an ad for a Marvel Sumsums or not? <laughs> That's fair, Dan, or, or another like, 2099 series or uh the uh the slingers <laughs> yeah 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 like can it actually pertain to the characters i want to read and not be an ad for something else right right i think that's fair yeah so, um good uh, stuff dan yeah uh you know this is what i like about the format of the annual if it's done right is that you can do like a longer story and really spend time with characters and um, and complete it in one issue. I mean, I can't think of many annuals that aren't done in one, you know, and yeah. uh, I love that about it. You know, I like picking up a big meaty issue and, you know, taking half an hour to read through it. Um, like, it, it, in a way, I almost wish, like, we got these double-sized, you know, things once a month instead of the smaller single issues. We'd probably get more complete stories. You know, it... it to me, this was a great highlight for how much of a hit Marvel Comics took in the move from 23 pages to 21 pages. Because give Dan Slott just a little bit more time, and he would spend time on all these characters and, and building up this world a bit. Absolutely, Dan. That's a great point. Well, the good news, Mark, is that this arc had far less installments than the Venom Inc. arc, which means I only get to spend the next 72 hours of my life editing as opposed to the next 170 hours of my life editing. And speaking of which, the shorter I keep this, the less time I have to spend on it. So why don't we just jump to it and review Amazing Spider-Man number 796.
Mark, we're here today to talk about Amazing Spider-Man number 796. It's the end of the threat level red arc leading up to going down swinging. I, again, another kind of like loose arc here with very little connection between the stories. Actually, weirdly enough, this story had more to do with the annual than, than mostly anything else. So, uh, Mark, you wrote the review for us on the website and... I'm sure people have read it, but tell us a little bit more about what you thought about this this issue. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you said, it's these these last three issues have kind of been like these standalone stories that all kind of tie together loosely, kind of what the Parker, um, the Fall of Parker stories did. But at least those, it felt like there was a more th- common through line to those three stories, even though they were kind of three independent. You know, it told a larger story of of Peter kind of dealing with the aftermath of, of Parker Industries falling. Whereas here, I guess, you know, the common thread is obviously Norman Osborne's slow coming to Jesus with carnage. But I don't know if that's enough to, it's not, there really isn't a common link, I think, in Peter's story here, except that, you know, it seems like each issue he's making very rushed decisions about his future in life that seem out of nowhere and kind of poorly built and executed by the creative team. I guess maybe that's common. Yeah. I mean, Sloppy writing. I, I think we were more lenient on it in the first issue of this uh, run with the whole time door thing as Dan Slott kind of wrapping up loose. At least I was more lenient on that issue. It didn't bother me as much. But these other two issues really seem to be kind of like checking boxes that nobody really cared about. Like we were fine with the Loki thing, but I wasn't waiting on that. And this issue to me is the biggest nothing burger of the bunch. Yeah, well, I mean, nothing burger in terms of, I think, actual consequential things to Spider-Man. But, you know, the, the, the fact is the last two issues have introduced two fairly significant development in, in Peter's personal life that in both instances were completely unearned and I felt were cheap. And I don't understand why why they're being built so poorly in these comics. I mean, you know, we, we've heard in interviews uh, over the last few weeks that – this exit for Dan Slott has been long planned, but these comics don't read like it's long planned, Dan. And, uh, you know, I don't want to call the the creator here uh, uh, a truth bender, but uh, it's just something doesn't add up here because, you know, we, we had the breakup of Peter and Bobby Morse in the last issue that just literally happened off panel and came out of nowhere after spending months upon months of building it up. And then this one, you know, if you want to, you know, after this nothing burger of a story, I mean, the big the big reveal at the end is, you know, all of a sudden after being persona non grata with Mary Jane Watson, you know, she's kind of like, ah, I still I still kind of like you, buddy. And then they close the door and hijinks are uh, assumingly happening behind that closed door. And you're just kind of like, what? Like. Really? Like this is this is how Peter and MJ are going to reconcile? I mean, not during Spider Island when it actually would have felt earned. <laughs> but now, really 
I mean, I would start with the end of the issue. I think this might be truly the most bizarre thing to happen in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man in since I can remember. I mean, can you think of a character beat more strange than this? No, and you know, I, it's you know, and and if some of our listeners feel this way, I I I don't want to come across as condescending, but the fact of the matter is that. You know, I, I did see from some people like, yeah, it was unearned and terrible, but Peter and MJ, man, it's great. And it's like, that's like, to me, that just sends the wrong message to Marvel. Like, it's not great. It's bad storytelling what they did here. Not that we don't want to see Peter and MJ together. I, I don't care, personally. <laughs> I'm tired of tired of debating it, and this is only going to make this debate go on, personally. But it's like, you know, if you're going to do this with two significant characters and you then you actually need to like do it with actual build and and execution and style and grace and flair this was none of that this was this was literally slapped together with a with, you know with all the grace of a rivet gun yeah you you said it exactly because like you know i, I think i have a, you know an investment in peter and mary jane being a couple and maybe it's not even that i have an investment in them being a couple i just like the character of mary jane like yeah. she's a good character and because people have done strong things with the character in the history of the comic that were really earned. Specifically, I would say the you know, Ron Friends, Tom DeFalco fleshing out her backstory and giving MJ a real kind of soul for the first time. And her role in the comics really changed after that point and I thought when she was used well, I would point to like the JMS run. You know, she's a really valuable character. Even in Dan Slott's run, there are good stories with Mary Jane in them. I mean, not very many, but, uh, you know, more often than not, she appears and is an exciting character to read on the page. But only if you respect her as a real character and not just something to kind of, like, throw around to appease fans, you know, if you think you're appeasing fans. You can't appease fans by destroying developments for the character no matter how unnaturally earned those developments were, ten years ago, you know what I mean. Like, I, I get no joy out of like seeing what seems to be undoing an action made ten years ago after I've reinvested in the ten years since uh, that that weird decision. Does that make sense? No, I do. I agree, and I, and and honestly, I think like if they feel that if if this is truly a fan appeasement issue, and I'm not and and. You know what, Dan? Like knowing Dan Slot, who's to say that this isn't like going to turn out to be some kind of epic troll on those fans at some point? I wouldn't put that past them. So let's let's put that out there. Like, it's I, not you know, actually MJ, or what we're seeing is something completely different. Or or just that they're they're doing this only for like you know the second page of six ninety seven for her to like stab him in the eye and say we should never have done this. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it's yeah. Just, you know, that get out would, of my life again, you know? Like That would be um, really but, trolly, yeah. Yeah, but like, I mean, but putting that aside, I mean, like, if <laughs> if if the issue was truly people just want to see Peter and MJ together, then then Renew Your Vows would be, would outsell Amazing Spider-Man, you know, or would have at least back when the book was a better quality book. But, you know, because people still didn't feel like it was earned and it counted and everything like that because it was just... You know, well, we're going to put them in this universe where this happens now. I, I don't think the book was quite the phenomena that it could have been if, you know, this was some kind of natural, organic 
reconciliation that occurred in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man. Told, like if they, if they pulled the trigger on it after, say, Spider-Island, where I was almost wondering that they might because it seemed like they were going in that direction. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish they had gone in that direction. It was it was a perfect build up to it. And it was beautifully done. Like it felt earned, you know, like that that like I don't know. How would you um, how would you feel because we've seen that artwork from 797 with her kind of unbuttoning his shirt and seeing the Spider-Man costume there and turning away. Spoiler for 797. Uh, I guess I should say spoiler warning before I say the spoiler. Um, like, which, <laughs> poorly, I mean... I, poorly done. <laughs> yeah, I could see the opening of that book opening with that moment and being like, oh, what you saw last issue didn't go further than where your imagination may have carried it. Right. Um, which is fine. It's still kind of a troll. And, uh, and comic books are built on troll endings uh, to a large part. To me, this feels cheaper than like, oh no, a bad guy has defeated Spider-Man uh, and undoing that. You know, like this is right. an actual thing fans have wanted for a long time. But how would you feel if in the next issue – and I have no knowledge of this. So uh, in the next issue, she addressed the Spider-Island moment and said, in that moment, I had feelings of love for you and I've been wrestling with it ever since. Would that would – that, would you buy that at all? I mean, maybe, but the, the the problem is, Dan. Like, I feel like the way this whole plot point was put into motion was just done without any any appropriate build up. I mean, we if, if you know, MJ kind of shows up again here, being like, "Oh man, ever since you lost Parker Industries, I don't know." I'm kind of she 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 kind of is emoting sympathy. Is kind of my sense. I mean, it's not entirely clear in how this book is presented anyway. I mean, that's problem number one. It's kind of like she's just there and, I don't know, feeling nostalgic because Peter's a loser again. Is that is that the takeaway here? Yeah, I think so. Um, and then she, like, thought he, like, handled it gracefully. Yeah, but, like, uh, I mean, that's, I, that's a fair enough sentiment. But the problem is, you know, we're now how many issues into this new status quo and, like, the – words you know mary jane has not even been an utterance in this book you know what i mean like like there's no reason when you know this book was reintroduced or relaunched or whatever the heck you want to call what legacy was a few months ago that that mj couldn't have been part of that first arc you know what i mean and maybe that you know maybe if you include her it kind of makes the bobby morse breakup make sense because maybe peter starts kind of having feelings again you know yeah (laughs) like it's like this is so many missed opportunities here. So now it's just like, well, no, now we're going to – I mean what what you're talking about, what you're proposing as as a solution, I mean it's kind of like it's 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 working backwards, which is – I mean at least it gets, provides some justification for what happens. But I don't know. I think in storytelling you should be working forward, not backward. You shouldn't, you shouldn't get to your end point and then start, you know – rewriting past issues and, and inserting context and stuff. I mean, like, the, the, this should have been built up from, from starting with 789. Was that the first legacy yeah. issue? Whatever. Yeah. The only reason I offer it is because I can only work backwards. You know what I mean? Like, uh, oh, yeah. You're, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's the position we're in. No, I, I you're, you're absolutely, I mean, like, if your question is, does it redeem it? Is, does it redeem the storyline? I would say 
a little bit. But to me, it's going to be very difficult for me to wrap my head around this no matter what direction they go because I feel it was poorly built in terms of its initial execution. I mean, you know, it's first impressions, last impressions, Dan. That's that's uh, that's old philosophical advice I got from a loved one many years ago. It's, you, you know, like this was this was this was their first attempt to try and reignite this flame here. And I think they failed. I really do. Which is such a shame because the Bobby Morse was so well sold. I thought that relationship and snuffed out like a light. Yeah. You know, and uh, I mean, who who can invest in anything when, when the rule seem here seems to be just arbitrariness, you know, like that seems to be the rules we're playing with. Nothing matters. We're just going to do this and, you know, they didn't even advertise just to sell books. You know, like, I, I mean, I guess the book did sell once the word got out. It started selling online for $20, you know. Well, oh, I think you, it had more know. to do with Carnage. You think so? That That's what's apparently been moving the last few issues is the, is, you know, we're, we're, cause we're back in the nineties, I guess, with people that, you know, they're considering Red Goblin or Norman Carnage or whatever you want to call him a first appearance of a new villain, I guess. Is this the first appearance of Red Goblin because he had the idea to become the Red Goblin? <laughs> I mean, how much are we drawing that fine line into? Well, uh, right. Is 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 two ninety eight, two ninety nine, or three hundred the first Venom, Dan? I mean, you know, or Web of Spider Man? What is that? Eleven or whatever that is, where the hand pushes him? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty problematic. Meanwhile, I mean, not to, not to cut this short, but like, let's, I mean, let's talk a little bit about the main story here. Um, in this it's, it's, um, I mean, like you said, it's not a terrible lot going on. I, I found a little bit enjoyment out of watching kind of Peter getting one up by Flash's anti-venom here. Um, I don't know. I found the humor in it. Like Peter just caught, you know, Spider-Man constantly being one step behind. It felt, it felt like a very token Spider-Man thing to be happening to his character. Yeah. I just don't really, I I never really felt Spider-Man being like that jealous of other heroes, especially if they're doing good. You know, it's like, he should be like, all right, this is a good scenario. There's another like wall crawling, essentially hero out here helping me out you know like i I never it appeared in the pages of miles morales's book where peter was like this kind of jerk to miles about being spider-man like i just don't really buy that kind of personality for the character i mean he's i guess he's not a jerk to anti-venom here but the jokes about like needing therapy over it it's like how many heroes have you worked with in this universe i don't really I, I mean, I guess I guess it worked for me because, I mean, again, we're still coming out of a storyline where, you know, this is a character who's trying to get get his mojo back, so to speak. And and, you know, here here is his high school bully doing one better than him in the field when he's, you know, at his still technically at his lowest point, you yeah. would think. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have a problem with it. I think I just don't love Agent Anti-Venom as a character like – I still don't really buy that character, uh, even though it's a nice redemption for Flash Thompson. Yeah, I mean, it's not a – I'm not saying this is like great, awesome, unbeatable comics here. It just felt 
there was there was a familiarity to it that made me tolerate it. I would say, you know, it didn't bother me. I, I, if 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 this was the whole issue and we didn't have some of the stuff we had at the end, I would have been like, all right, well, you know, that was kind of a a nothing book, but it was fine, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, one one thing that really bothered me, like I, I yeah, I'm okay with the anti venom stuff. Uh, it's, it's, I don't love it. I've never loved the anti-venom stuff, but right. what, what bothered me more was how this J Jonah Jameson, uh, major status quo shift was handled in the pages of this book. This yeah. kind of dumb phone call where Jonah lays out the new status quo. There's no, it's so funny. You do a big change like this and there seems to be no repercussions of this, like other than being annoyed by Jonah and maybe we'll get it in the pages of Spectacular, but like to change this up and then mine no drama from it is so boring. Yeah, I mean, you know, if if the biggest, like you said, the biggest shift is going to be, oh, Jonah makes phone calls and nags Spider Man. Then what's the what was the point of that? I mean, you know, we we had the 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 unmasking to Jonah in Ultimate, and it felt far more uh, impassioned there. You know, like. Yeah. In terms of, in terms of the consequences of it, and, and in terms of where that story went. I mean, but if this is all it took, then why, like, why sixty years of? I mean, I guess Jonah had to get to the point where he was so low that this would, you know, be something for him. But it kind of like invalidates the character. Like, it takes away his one, in you know, like major trait is. I mean, maybe that's a not a great thing to say about Jonah. His one trait is his hatred of Spider Man, but. If you're going to flip that, at least give him something else that makes him interesting. Um, I guess it doesn't need to be in the pages of this book, but then why, like, why bring it up at all? You know, he said uh, he's like he said he's like Jonah Oracle or something, or I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the worst. Oh, he's, I, I, he's J Jonah Joracle. Oh boy. Oh my god. Yeah, and he's he's uh, monitoring the city using a vast pizza network. There you go. There well, Papa, 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 I hear Papa John's is severing its relationship with the NFL. That's prime for Jonah to get on in on that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, and I, and and I think I, I I thought when you were starting to talk about some of your issues here with with the story, I thought you were going to say the biggest overall issue, and I think you and I we've kind of talked offline about this. I mean, even with some of these kind of harmless bits of story here with flat with flash and spider-man and everything um this is this is not a stellar art outing for amazing spider-man i mean this is so it's it's mike hawthorne and terry pallet is this the same team that did the last book yeah and we and we commended that book for having so much detail in its backgrounds and and cityscapes this one the backgrounds and cityscapes couldn't be more vacant of detail it is so boring and stiff to look at I, I I have to wonder what the timeline he was working on for this book was. Yeah, I mean, you know, if, if for what it's worth, I mean, like I was kind of shocked that, you know, the, the 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 production schedule for Spider-Man has kind of been all over the map. I mean, it was an every other week book, and then it was like three times in two months, and yada yada. I mean, we we. I feel like these issues have been pumping out at like rep- record pace the last couple of months. I mean, you know, you just you just got done editing together those Venom Ink stories. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> Mark, you know, I, like, I feel like I'm talking to you every other night. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I love you, Dan, but I mean, this is a lot of Spider-Man content being pumped <laughs> out, in, you know, out of the main book lately, and it's it's kind of stunning. Um, so maybe this had to kind of get slapped together. I mean, yeah, the 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 general cityscape stuff was pretty generic. Um, I mean, the stuff in costume didn't offend me, but the stuff that I thought was really sketchy, um, both literally and figuratively, was. Um, the stuff out of costume like these 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 don't look like they're characters like i like it it was very amateurish to me like i i I was not a fan of how peter looked or betty brant looked or jonah looked you know what i mean like none of the like like they just it looked very blah to me yeah uh just yeah boring action work you know like characters in kind of very stiff poses yeah. You know, uh, the coloring was really boring, too. Uh, I-, I thought, like, lots of very, like, bland, low-saturated colors. Look, it's a Spider-Man comic. Give me splashy colors. Yeah. I don't I don't get this. You know, I know that there's this movement in coloring to kind of make everything complementary and, uh, and not make the colors local, which means, like, your reds aren't necessarily red. They're a different color that reads as red. And mm. you know what? I get that. But, like, give me some red and blue. Like, get, like blow Spider-Man off the page. I, I want to read something splashy. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I guess um, to each their own. So, I mean, you know, this scene with, with the Red Goblin here, it's supposed to be graphic and gory. And what we got was kind of... Okay, I guess uh, it didn't really translate to me as anything truly horrifying. I mean, I guess the bigger horrifying is kind of watching Norman struggle emotionally with Carnage. I mean, it didn't it didn't certainly didn't measure up artistically to like what Mike Perkins was doing on the Carnage solo book uh, a couple of years back. I mean, that that truly felt like horrifying art in a good you know in in the way it should be. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, again, like here, here's this big moment, apparently, and it just feels kind of wasted by by very lackluster art, um, just like the big moment with Peter and MJ was was lackluster in terms of story. So, I mean, what 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 are we to do going into this final big arc that we're going to get on the dance slot run? Yeah, I mean, at least have some blood splattered all over Norman's face or something like that. Um did you think that – I mean I guess it was kind of an immediate change between panels. So Norman gets the Carnage symbiote into his DNA and, and I, this is a new Venom power is that these symbiotes become a part of your cellular structure. Whatever. Uh, yeah. That's like an ultimate universe thing, which whatever, fine. He's able to expel <laughs> – the thing that's stopping him becoming the goblin. And then, of course, Venom allows you to change the way you look. And he changed back to Norman looking Norman Osborn. And for a second there, I was thought, oh, man, he should have become Mason Banks. <laughs> oh, God. No Mason Banks. <laughs> I'm halfway intrigued by this. But the kind of, like, struggle, I think, was more interesting than, like, them teamed up now. Uh, yeah. Which is where we're at. Because well, that was the thing too. It, it felt like there was struggle, but you know, once he enters, like you said, his cellular structure, everyone kind of gets over the struggle pretty quickly. Yeah, I still don't really see Carnage as someone that would really subdue himself like that, you know. And maybe he has an ulterior motive we're not getting, you know, or it, I guess. Like once 
the Red Goblin has created, Carnage will really take over? We'll, we'll see. I'm not totally sold on this character yet, but I feel like Eminem is going to be able to sell it to me in some regard. Yeah, well, you know, I feel like the pieces are now in place in terms of the status quo of the story, whether we like it or not. So let's see how they sell it. But this was a pretty, these last few issues, Dan, have been a pretty rough ride getting us to this going down swinging. So uh, I don't want to, this is, this is going to sound threatening and I don't mean it to be, but this, this story better be good, Dan. Cause like, I, I, I feel like I, I am suspending a lot of, I don't want to say disbelief, but I'm suspending a lot in, in faith that, this story is going to end on a very satisfactory note in terms of this very long-term run by a creator on this book. I think if it doesn't end on a good note, it's just for me, it's just like, all right, next guy. Like I'm I'm ready to move on. Well, I think we've been ready for a while, but you know, I I guess for Dan Slott's sake, you you, you want to see him end on a high note. Yeah. yeah. Whether, whether, whether you love his work or not at this point, I mean, like it it is an achievement that he's been on this book as long as he has, that he's done as much with the character as he has again, whether you like it or not, that's another debate. But you know, it, it is unquestionable that when we look back on this run, it's, it's going to be a run that you talk about for good or for bad. Um, so you kind of want to see something end that's significant. You don't want to see it go out with a whimper. And, you know, we've seen a lot of whimpers from Dan Slott over the last few years when it comes to these big bombastic things that he's been building towards. And, you know, this, this is setting up to be really, um, unnerving because it just seems like things are, are building at paces that he's, I don't know if he's comfortable building them at these paces because he's, you know, he's Mr. Long Game and now we're getting things unveiled that are not the long game at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and and it does kind of complete a pattern here, right? Which is when we get these prolonged buildups to a story that rushes the pieces together and perhaps none as, as rushed as this. Um, and, and so, you know, we'll, we'll see. I mean, yeah, I mean, here's the deal beyond being a critic. You're right. I would love to see, I love any time we get a great Spider-Man comic. You know what right. I mean? So, like, I want to see a good, big, you know, Spider-Man story. That would be so much fun for me. And I'm sure you and I will get back into our crazy speculations and excitement like we normally do when we're really digging this book. Um, so, I, I don't know. Um, one thing I did want to talk about a little bit, because we kind of skipped over the A-plot of this book. Okay. Uh, this, like... Uh, I don't know, like tech demonstration with Liz Allen and right. the, the Goblin uh, King kind of invading. I, I, I get the sense that the Goblin King is going to come back in some way as a, a way for Norman to, you know, regain the Goblin throne because sure. there are these other Goblins and Goblin Nation out there. Um, I thought that this story was so. Uh, I got over the the hand cutting off jokes and that kind of bizarre imagery really quick. <laughs> I thought Liz Allen is a character. I have no idea what to make of Liz Allen as a character. When she showed up back on the scene during the Goblin Nation stuff and the lead up to the 2099 story in Superior, I thought for sure there was some subterfuge going on there. There was something else with Liz and her son and that was going to – and nothing ever – came of that and now she's just running alchemax and 
uh, I don't know. I don't really buy that character, nor do I think anything interesting has been done with her. You had that scene with her and Flash in the cafe, and it seems like two strangers just meeting up to, like, dump exposition on each other. And yeah. uh, with the history as deep as theirs, I I don't know. Uh, Dan saw jokes in this comic that everybody Peter knows is now, like, a major CEO – but I think that's a problem for a book where Peter no longer operates in that realm. Yeah, I, I think mean, that's a fair point. Do you see? You th- are, are you ho- do you hope uh, out of this kind of uh, um, going down swinging arc, we get maybe the whole cast being brought down a level? Well, that would yeah. I mean, I think it's necessary. I mean, like you said, it's you can't have you can't have everybody up and Peter be down. I mean, I feel like we've done that to some degree, but never, never to this degree. And, and like you said, I mean, like we're, 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 we're so out of our element now with these characters that, um, there just needs to be something to kind of reground and recenter them. I mean, Liz Allen, like you said, is like probably the worst of them all. Like I, like you said, I don't know, I don't know who this character is anymore. I don't think they know who this character is anymore. And if you're going to, you know, like you might as well just introduce a new character. Like it's 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 Ms. Mallon. <laughs> I kinda like that. Ms. Mallon. There, <laughs> there we go. Uh yeah, so I just wanted to bring that up and, and uh the Goblin King, okay. That character lost all interest to me when he wasn't the hobgoblin anymore. I don't know if that's like a, a surface level thing, but I just can't really keep up with like who Phil is. He worked great as like a a counter Peter analog where he had, you know, his uncle Ben and his kind of twisted code of responsibility. But I just don't know who this guy is anymore. Yeah. Oh, I mean that ship sailed many moons ago. Yeah. So he just seems like a, like a, a, a an empty slot of a villain. Like, okay. There and there we go. Goblin King is in this issue. We'll have to bring back uh, Mr. Negative and Freak again or something. Or Yeah. Well, I mean, it seemed like, a, for me, thinking about the story, it seemed like a great opportunity for someone like Clash, right? Who is kind of this character that likes to break into tech-oriented yeah. things and, and steal, like, you know, dangerous tech away from these. Like, it seemed like a great opportunity to reintroduce Clash. Uh, right. And Christos Gage was, was scripting this one, so... You know, it probably would be a pretty decent clash if that was the case. Yeah, yeah, it's true. So, um, but the only thing I did like about this A level story is that it made that annual count even more. There you go. Thank goodness. <laughs> I, I'll add that one into my my column of, of wins for Dan. There we go. There you go. Uh, All right. I'll take well, what I can speak- get. Speaking of wins, so what's your what's your uh, what's your grade on this? Uh, I I want to I want to fail this book for like I I don't think we've ever like said like straight up an F on a book. Uh, uh, I, I I don't know if I'm this is that book. It, I don't know if this is that book, but it's like a D minus for me. I'll give it a D plus. I don't know. I guess I guess some of the some of the story the main story didn't bother me too much, but yeah, there's a there's a lot of problematic elements here, and this is this is you know after. A lot of riding pretty high earlier. Well, I guess it was last year, Dan. It's been rough lately. I don't know. 
like it's like oh man we're back to this kind of show again <laughs> yeah i i hate this kind of show mark yeah. i i, I want to be the other show yeah me too Dan, just just going back through the, that time machine just brought tears to my eyes. I, I don't know, man. Like it's just wow. We're, we're great. We're great. We're a great team. How self congratulatory of you! <laughs> it was nice to hear them, though. Now that we're so deep into uh, uh, going go down swinging, which uh, we're loving it so far. So uh, uh, a little bit better than this storyline, and I'm looking forward to discussing those books with everybody here on the podcast yeah so thanks again everyone for joining us and uh, of course you know we have to tease that uh our patreon subscribers that's that special club that that pays for uh access for just three dollars and 99 cents a month to hear it uh you're gonna if you check your podcast feed you're gonna get a special review of amazing spider-man number 797 uh, as well as that discussion Dan mentioned earlier about the new creative team of Nick Spencer and Ryan Otley. You know, you want those those ep- episodes as we do them? Just sign up. Go to our sites. Click on the uh, the uh, Patreon page there and, and get for $3.99 a month uh, access to those new issue reviews, the news like about creative teams, Swarm B-Book, extended interviews, mailbags, all that stuff. Uh, and then if you're even feeling super generous, $10 a month, you're going to get access to some awesome commission artwork, including uh, our recent uh, commission from Ron Friends, which I-, I believe most of our our highly respected Patreon members at this point will be having in their mailbox. Right, Dan? Yeah, absolutely. And we've got some announcements coming up relatively soon about the next artist in our lineup. Right, Mark? Uh, we hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I hope you're right. <laughs> it's happening. It's happening. So uh, go check out our Patreon. Go to the podcast description. You'll see a link to it there as well. Now, Mark, if I wanted to follow you on the web this week, where would I go? Well, this week, next week, last week, you can find me at Chasing ASM Blog on Twitter. You can find me on SuperiorSpiderTalk.com where I am – I am reviewing those new issues in real time, although it's still so much better to hear you and I talk about it, Dan. So again, $3.99 a month and you know, much better than my little crappy written review. But still go to SuperiorSpiretalk.com and read it. For God's sakes, just do it. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, you know, if, if you're already in a kind of spending kind of mood, why don't you drop another 10 to $15 on 100 things Spider-Man fans should know and do before they die in both print and ebook format. Uh, wherever major books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, through the publisher's web website, which is Triumph Books. You know these books are still out there. They haven't they haven't gone out of print yet. So so buy them. You know. How about you, Dan? I've got one of your books, and I'm always reading it. But uh, yeah, you can uh, find me on Twitter at at sup spider talk for all my Spider Man related talkings, and uh, you can follow me on Twitter at at Dan Gavostin for everything that's not Spider Man related. Uh, so yeah. Plenty of places to follow me and all of my doings. I've always got something I'm cooking, although it's typically this show. You're not cooking any L.A. bagels, are you? I, I No, because L.A. doesn't even know how to cook bagels. So I'm not going to get into that field and make it any worse. You know, that's something terrible. But, you know, in terms of something great, there's a motto that you and I like to come back to over and over again. And it's got nothing to do with 
bagels or Canadian bacon. It's got something to do with responsibility for your ears. Mark, what, what is that, what is that uh, saying? Yeah, you know, in the immortal words of Uncle Ben, with great podcasts must also come the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. 